Good morning, church. God is good. All the time. time? Sound a little sleepy today. I was uh, I was visiting uh, um, the Will family, Nick and Ruth Will, who had a baby on Tuesday. He's a third year med student over at the medical school there, and and I got to hold little Emily in my arms. And uh, she was looking at me, and as I was holding her, I was just rocking her. Her eyes were just kind of starting to, you know, close. And then eventually she just went off to sleep and just made these little cooing sounds and just fell asleep in my arms. And they're like, oh, we're sorry she fell asleep. I'm like, oh, no. I go, I have this effect on people, so it's all right. Don't worry about it. You know, I just have that soothing effect. So, um, but you sound a little tired. It must have been a rough week this week. Um, I just had the joy of, uh, I was walking from the sanctuary to uh, the, the uh, building across the parking lot there, and as I was reaching out to shake Joy's hand, my iPad slipped out of my Bible, and of course, I didn't have my case on it, so I thought of you, Mike, <laughs> the conversation we had, so it kind of looks like yours did a little bit, but fortunately, it works, so God is good all the time in spite of the hardships, right, that come along, and, but I looked, and I go, yeah, they're all there, okay, because you don't want me to improvise today, that would be a... Well, that could be a good thing. Maybe, uh, I don't know. We'll see. But anyways, we're starting a series today uh, based off of this book, The Life You've Always Wanted, Spiritual Disciplines for Ordinary People uh, by John Ortberg. Read it years ago, and I've always liked it and thought it's a, it's a great book for, for spiritual growth and learning how to uh, grow in Christ. And so we're beginning today, and I'll be covering the first two chapters. And as, as myself and some of the other pastors preach out of this book, we won't obviously hit all the details. We'll hit some of the main points that are important, but obviously bring in our own journey along with it as well. So as I thought about the life I've always wanted, maybe you've always wanted, that people in this world always want, I reflected, you know, as a child, what is, what is the life I wanted as a child? And you think about, oh, I'm going to be a professional football player. You know, that's the life I wanted. Uh, or maybe I'm going to be a professional baseball player. Or maybe, you know, all of these types of things. And you talk to people as they're growing up. Maybe some people, the life they want is to be rich. Because if they had all the money they could possibly want, they wouldn't have any more problems, right? Or to be popular. To be loved and well-liked by everybody. To be able to achieve great feats, maybe in sports or in the arts and music and so forth. Or maybe... The life we've always wanted is to be loved profoundly and to love others in the same way. Maybe it's those fruits of the Spirit, the joy and the peace and the goodness and the self-control and the faithfulness and to all of those things. To be a habitual forgiver. Is that the life we've always wanted? Or maybe, although I doubt it, the life we've always wanted is Envy and bitterness, anger, rage, manipulating others, passive aggressiveness, lying, deceitfulness, having to have control of every situation. Is that the life we've always wanted? Doesn't seem like it. But sometimes we end up in those places. And we think sometimes those things are the means to get the life that we've always wanted. But the good news is, is that we don't have to stay in those places that Jesus offers a better way. And that's why Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How many of us here this morning could use a little renewing of our mind? I sure can. And I thank God that he's been in the process because I know the way I used to think. And I'm enjoying more the way that I'm thinking now by the grace of God. But there's still some what they call stinking thinking going on in my head. And I'm sure in some of yours as well. But when the Bible says here in Romans to be transformed, it's interesting because it's only used in the Bible four times in the New Testament. And two of the times this word is used in the New Testament, it's the word that is used to describe the transfiguration of Christ. And so God is inviting us into a life of transfiguration, of transformation, of going beyond ourselves. In fact, the word literally means to change the inward reality. So when we're being transformed, we are not being conformed to look like something, to fit into a mold. The very inner reality of our lives is being changed by Jesus himself, being transformed in the inmost nature. That's why John Orberg on page 21 says, when transformation happens, I don't just do the things Jesus would have done. I find myself wanting to do them. They appeal to me. They make sense. I don't just go around trying to do right things. I become the right sort of person. This happens, Paul says, by the renewing of the mind. Another way this Greek word could be uh, um, translated is renovated. How would you like your mind renovated? (laughs) Made new, renewed, all again. So we're asked to be and invited to be transformed in the renewing of our mind and not to be conformed to the world, not to assimilate ourselves to the world. I love how the message translation says it. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This is why Jesus said the following words, which Matthew records in his version of the good news about Jesus. Many of us know these words well. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, when Jesus said those words in Matthew chapter 11, they're wonderful words of comfort, and oftentimes we look at that, those verses as oh, I'm so burdened and so weary. This life is just beating me down, and so I'm going to come to Jesus for comfort. And that's wonderful because he asked us to do that. But as I mentioned a long time ago in a sermon where I addressed this text, I thought I would remind you because I hardly remember the sermon, so I'm sure you hardly remember it even more. But when Jesus said these words, he was, the context in which he was speaking was that the religious leaders of his day and age and the teachers were burdening the people with how they were supposed to live with God. 
And it was all a thing of acting the right way and doing the right things. And if you do that, then you have favor with God. But they were very burdensome, and it wasn't the way God wanted to be taught. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and he says, you're coming under the yoke of these rabbis. You see, that's what it was talked about in those days. When you were under a rabbi, you were a disciple, you came under their yoke, their teaching, their leadership, their lordship, if you will. Well, the yoke that the religious leaders were putting on the people was very burdensome, and it wasn't the way of God. And so Jesus comes along, and he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, unlike the people that are supposed to be representing me. And you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus himself said that they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. Now, we have a special treat today in that Jerry Kapitsky uh, gave me the yoke that Loretta taught him how to be a husband under. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we have this yoke. And he turned out to be a fine gentleman, didn't he? Yes. Um, but he got this in Bolivia, and they used this to, uh, to train oxen. And so they would take one ox, put it over here, another ox over here, and they would put, let's say on this side, the mature, uh, the adult ox, put it under here so that it could train the younger oxen how to live like an oxen is supposed to live in Bolivia and work in the fields and so forth. So they would take the ox, put it here, the horns would go on the backside. In fact, you can see on this side, where they wore from their horns. You know, right there and over here. In fact, if you were to look at it from my angle, you can see where it's worn into the wood. They used leather straps uh, instead of the rope, but we have rope here just to kind of give you an idea. But they would place the oxen in this yoke, and so what would happen is that you'd have the younger one and the older one, and they'd go out in the field. And so whenever the older ox was going to eat, when do you think the younger one ate? When it was time to work, when did you think the younger one started working? When it was time to rest, when it was time to do whatever, whatever the more mature ox was going to do, the younger one was going to learn to do it as well. Came under the yoke of that oxen and learned how to do what needed to be done. And so Jesus says, this yoke that my leaders have put on you is not the one that you're supposed to be wearing. They're giving you a yoke that is full of their need to be in control, their need for power politically and religiously, their need to kind of keep you under their thumb, and that's not the way, that's a, that's a heavy yoke. Jesus says, come and take my yoke upon you. Can you imagine being yoked with Jesus? Here's Jesus, and here's you. What kind of life is that? I'll tell you, it's an amazing life. Because everything he's going to show us is the love that we're looking for, the compassion, the forgiveness, the strength, the grace to get through hardships. Being yoked with Jesus is the greatest invitation we've ever been offered in our lifetime. And so Jesus says, walk with me, work with me, talk with me. I'll show you how to get a real rest. I'll show you how to really live this life. When it's time to lay down, when it's time to go to work, when it's time to eat, when it's time to every part of our life, Jesus invites us into his yoke and says, this is the life, a life of transformation a life of being mastered by Jesus himself. And so that's why I love the translation and the message of this passage where Eugene Peterson translates it. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. 
Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You see, this passage in Matthew 11, while it's very comforting at life stages, it's really an invitation to discipleship. It's an invitation to follow Jesus and to give him our life and to trust him with our life. It's an invitation to live under his reign and in his kingdom and to learn from him of the joys of having a Lord like Jesus who gives his life away for us and offers us a quality of life and freedom and true living and ultimate reality. As Orpberg says on page 9, we are learning from Jesus how to arrange our lives. He goes on, he says, but to grow spiritually, it means to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place, to perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through our eyes, to think what he would think, to feel what he would feel, and therefore to do what he would do. I love the quote that Orpberg uses of Soren Kierkegaard, in which Soren says this, now with God's help, I shall become myself. In surrendering to Jesus and the transformation he does in our lives, we truly become our true selves. But Orpah goes on to say, and I agree with him 100%, basically that if we settle for anything less than what Jesus is offering us in discipleship to him and a life of transformation under his yoke, we settle for what he calls pseudo-transformation. Pseudo-transformation. If transformation, Christ formed in us, is not what we are about as a church, we will become a pseudo-church. A pseudo-transformed church. Dr. Dunn, a scholar in New Testament, wrote about the rabbinic writings that many um, in the first century were familiar with. In the first century AD, a large amount of rabbinic writings focused on what Orpberg calls boundary marker religion. And they focus primarily on circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Having the appearance of being transformed, but not experiencing the inner reality of being transformed by the renewing, the renovation of our mind, by Jesus. Let me share with you what I found to be a pretty hilarious example of this. If we, if we don't trust Jesus and enter into that transforming relationship by his love, we will be content with the things that look like we're the people of God, but not live like the people of God in our love and our relationships with others. This happened uh, just a couple of months ago, I believe, not too long ago, in the New York Post. This was article came up. Drug dealers text customers were closed for Shabbat. <laughs> Drug dealers closing their offices on the Sabbath. Sabbath obviously was important to them for some reason. But listen to this. It says, group of observant Brooklyn drug dealers told customers they were closed for Shabbat. On April 20, 2013, the New York Police Department uh, officers raided a drug den in Brooklyn, New York, the police found a crew of five men in possession of 23,000 pills of oxycodone with a street value of $460,000. A 
Apparently, the men had used stolen prescription sheets to obtain the drugs. They were also accused of peddling heroin and cocaine and possessing a sawed-off shotgun. But there was an interesting twist of the story. The men routinely texted their customers that they were closed for the Sabbath. One text read, We are closing at 7.30 on the dot, and we'll reopen Saturday at 8.15. So if you need anything, you have 45 minutes to get what you want. That explains why police officers dubbed their year-long investigation into the group only after sundown. (laughs) Here are these drug dealers keeping Sabbath. They're shutting down their sales. I don't know why. Maybe they felt like if we did this, God will bless us more, right? (laughs) Honor him, he'll honor us. Well, he did honor them. He brought them in touch with reality with the hope of really discovering what life could be about and not this. You see... It can be very easy, if we're not careful, to kind of be content with pseudo-transformation. To have the appearance of the things of God, but then actually not be experiencing the renewal of God inside of us. There are lots of wonderful things about our denomination, many beautiful teachings our church has. But as some of you and I have grown up in this church, we've seen a lot of wonderful things and a lot of hard things to see. And sometimes, I think we have to confess that sometimes within the Adventist church, there is that border marking, boundary marking religion that happens. We have the Sabbath. We have the healthy way of living. We have a gift of prophecy. We have all of these wonderful things, and they are beautiful things. But when they become more of a right to us than a responsibility given to us, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. When it becomes a right, I'm on the inside, you're on the outside. That's what happened in the Bible, wasn't it? God chose the people of Israel for a special responsibility to bring the light of his love and reconciliation to the world. And some of them got caught up on saying, oh, we're the special chosen ones. We got this right. You guys are out. That's what happens when we're not going through transformation, experiencing the love of God renewing our lives, it becomes boundary marking. Orpor gives some warning signs. He says, first of all, here are are some warning signs that I might be settling for uh, pseudo-transformation. Am I spiritually inauthentic? In other words, am am I preoccupied with appearing to be spiritual? Am I becoming judgmental or exclusive or proud? Am I becoming more approachable or less approachable? Am I growing weary or pursuing, of pursuing spiritual growth? He says the pursuit of righteousness is always an exhausting pursuit when it seeks a distorted goal. Am I measuring my spiritual life in superficial ways? Or am I growing in love for God and for people? If I'm not growing in my love for God and my love for others... I need to ask myself, what kind of transformation am I experiencing? What is happening in my life? Galatians 5, 6, Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let me read that again and then let you put in where it says circumcision or uncircumcision. You put in whatever boundary marker you've experienced or you've seen. For in Christ Jesus, neither this boundary marker nor that boundary marker has any value. 
The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians, further down in chapter 6, he says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, again, whatever boundary marker, means anything. What counts is a new creation. Making us new, the renewing of the mind. Orberg says his plan is not simply to repair most of our brokenness. He wants to make us new creatures, a new creation in his love. And I believe when this happens, we become a pathological type of people. Let me just explain that a little bit. One of the definitions of pathologic, pathological is this. Being such to a degree that is extreme, excessive, or markedly abnormal. Okay, let me read that again. Pathological can also mean being such to a degree that is extreme, excessive, or markedly abnormal. Now, we've heard the term pathological liar, maybe pathological theft or stealing. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus was very pathological. He was extreme and excessive and markedly abnormal in his love for human beings. That he was extreme and excessive and markedly abnormal in how he forgave people and how he reached out to them and how he spoke to the world. And he calls us through being yoked to him that we too will become pathological lovers and forgivers. We will become pathological in our compassion and our kindness and our gentleness and our humility and our patience. Horberg suggests that there are things in life that, that God uses to help us grow in our transformation, to become pathological in these experiences, if you will. He says, he uses the example of Moses, and he says, when Moses was out tending to the sheep, one day he saw this bush on fire. You know the story. It was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And so Moses, it says, turned aside. And he said, there are many things in our life that God uses in our, our life, in our day-to-day life, at school, at work, at play, in the family, that God is trying to get us to turn aside, to give him our attention that we might grow and be transformed. And I love, he quotes Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She has this cute little poem. She says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. (laughs) It's right there in front of you. Oh, it's just a bush. No, no. It's God working through this situation to say, work with me, walk with me, see how I do it, and be transformed. Be a new creature, a new creation. Orberg says that the purpose of this whole book that we're reading is to help us learn how to use every moment, every activity of life for transformation purposes. As I'm getting older, you know, there's new pains every week, isn't there? Right? Those of you who are older, you, you can feel my pain. Right? Man, alive, I should have listened to my parents and they said, quit falling on your knees on the concrete, right? Man, alive, you're going to, someday you're going to, you're not going to appreciate what you have, you know, and oh man, I'm there. You know, I sit there, you know, it's hard work watching a football game on Sunday mornings sometimes, you know, because you actually have to lean back to get the part to come up of the sofa and just kind of, you know. Sometimes the remote control is not right there. You have to reach all the way over there. And you watch that, and then you, you get up. And then when you get up, you're not straight, I'm finding at my age. You know, it takes me about 10 steps to fully get straight by the time I get to the kitchen so I can get to the food, right? But we have this obsession with staying young and, and not having all that. We, we wish we could have, I've heard it all the time, and now I understand. I wish I had my mind now 
but the body of a 20-year-old, you know? It's like, that would be, that'd be dangerous, actually, I think. It'd probably... But we, we have this idea that, that being young, is, is if we could all just get back to being young. But I love what Henry Nouwen said, and I don't remember where he said it. I just remember he said it. He says, but if we've been walking with Jesus in his yoke for decades, that's the sweetest life you can have. No matter how old the body is, you're being renewed on the inside. And if I've been walking with Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, it ought to be the sweetest life known to mankind. And it ought to be the sweetest life known by mankind as I live with the people on this planet. I want to close today with reading you a section from this book of John Ortberg's. And um, it's not a real short section because it talks about a life. And so I invite you to, uh, to sit back and relax, try not to fall asleep, but to listen to this testimony of this woman's life. It's so beautiful. He says, you know, it can be helpful to see how God brings about transformation in the lives of ordinary people. So I'd like to introduce you to a friend of a friend of mine, and her name is Mabel. This is what my friend Tom Schmidt wrote. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's large, it's understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there. I always left there with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair, and her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf, and one side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. 
That is when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her story. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer came. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes and bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines and certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 different directions at once with all the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. She said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks wouldn't think I'm kind of, lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned. But I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn that's found in our hymnal, Hymn number 185, Jesus is all the world to me. Some of you know it. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Here was an ordinary human being who received supernatural power to do extraordinary things. Her entire life consisted of following Jesus at best she could in her situation. Patient endurance of suffering, solitude, 
prayer, meditation on scripture, worship, fellowship when it was possible, giving when she had a flower or a piece of candy to offer. Imagine being in her condition and saying, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kinds of people who's mostly satisfied. This is the 23rd Psalm come to life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the life Jesus calls us into. A life of extreme abundance of love, forgiveness, mercy, compassion, peace, and joy. John Orberg says in my closing, the good news as Jesus preached it is that now it is possible for ordinary men and women to live in the presence and under the power of God. The good news as Jesus preached it is not about the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. It's about the glorious redemption of human life. Your life, my life, and our life. Let's pray. Jesus, you truly are good. And Lord, we want the good life of being yoked with you. Because when we walk this life with you, and we work with you, and we rest with you, and we watch how you do it, we see what life is really about. Life that is worth eternity. So Jesus, we surrender to you. We truly want to be transformed. We want to continue to grow in our transformation to you. We don't want to be conformed by a religion. We don't want to be conformed by the world. We want to be transformed by you. New creatures, now and forever in your kingdom. Take a moment now. I invite you in silent prayer to talk to Jesus about his love for leading your life and my life.